Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Sean McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Seth Rosen, aka the Data Twitter comedian, on the show. Seth is currently head of data products at Sneak, and I was actually fortunate to meet Seth when we partnered with him on his previous company, Topcoat Data, which was acquired by Sneak. In this episode, we're going to cover all things data and also explain the modern data stack to listeners. So welcome to the show, Seth. Awesome. Thanks a ton for having me. Appreciate it. Yes. Let's start with your background. So start from the beginning, where you grew up, how you got into product management, founded Topcoat, and then of course, how you ended up at Sneak. So from Worcester, Massachusetts, originally ended up going to college at UMass in Western Massachusetts and actually studied accounting. So I was in a, an accounting major and went into work for one of the big four accounting firms. My first job was you know, making sure the data center doors were locked and that there was a fire extinguisher inside the data center. So doing stuff like that as an auditor and very quickly decided that I'm going to move on. I'm going to try something else and joined a really early stage startup. It was like a Groupon style voucher system. Just never looked back from kind of the startup ecosystem from there and kind of found my way into product management, into data, because I was kind of always the product manager that knew the most SQL. And I was always, you know, building dashboards and writing queries. And so then started to take on more kind of internal BI, BI team responsibilities. Ultimately, if you fast forward a whole bunch, ended up starting a data consultancy where we helped companies set up what you refer to as the modern data stack, the traditional modern data stack, and found a whole bunch of potential things that we could do to, to help our customers even more. And so we created our own product called Topcoat, which we can get into, and then ultimately was acquired by Sneak. And now we're continuing to build out the Topcoat platform within Sneak, which is pretty exciting. There must be something in the data community around accounting, because I think Tristan at DBT and you both started as accounting majors and in accounting and then moved to, I mean, how did that even go when you joined that startup? Like, were they like, hey, we kind of just need someone and I guess you could do product or you could do whatever you want. Like, how do you even get into product from accounting? There were three of us that started it. And, you know, one had worked in the hedge fund, one had worked in finance and I was an accountant. So it was like, the blind leading the blind. And so we had to figure it out as we went. But it was, you know, for me, professionally, just a massive learning experience, whole new world. And so we all kind of just learned along the way. So I want to talk about that shift from product to data as well. You talked about, you know, being the PM, that new SQL, basically. And so there's a lot of different languages, tooling, end users, stakeholders, all these sort of things between those two. So talk more about that shift and how you're able to make it. One of the advantages that I had is, I worked for a lot of early stage companies. And when you work for a lot of early stage companies, you can wear a lot of hats, right? And so one of the first things that always would happen is, you know, I'd start at a new job or something like that. And I'd say, hey, can I get access to the production read replica database? I want to write some SQL. I want to understand our users. And you just start to become the person that people go to for data requests and asking for things and building dashboards. You kind of become that go-to person. And that was something that interested me a ton professionally. I was challenged by it. So then you start to think about, okay, how do I mature this function at this growing company? How do we bring in more people? How do we bring in other data besides stuff that's in our production database? How do we join across different things? And that kind of evolution as a product manager and then as someone who's led a BI team, right? That is something that kind of happened organically. And then said, you know, this is the place I want to be. I want to be in data and continue on from there. And one thing that's always interesting to me is like you knew SQL, right? But you still need to understand the actual data model. 
of what's going on to be able to do the joins, to be able to do the exploratory analysis, to write the queries, right? And so again, you're making the shift over from PM into data as a product manager. How did you even learn what the data model was? And maybe first for listeners, explain what a data model is and then talk more about how you're able to understand the data model. Yeah, sure. So essentially a data model is just how the data is represented in the database. So if you are you know, an e-commerce company, you probably have a table called users, a table called products and a table called orders. And, you know, an order has one or many products and a order has a user that purchased something. And so, you know, if you're in a database and you're trying to pull data, you need to understand how do all these tables relate to one another? And how do I write a query that does the thing that I want it to do? And you just learn SQL is something that's easy for people to pick up. And once you do, you're forced to learn the underlying data. And then that also becomes yet another advantage that you have because you understand the business, you understand the data, you understand how the data flows in addition to learning SQL. And that has all sorts of additional benefits as well. For that e-commerce example, what would be an example of joining tables together? So, you know, you talked about, hey, we got the users, we got the transactions, stuff like that. But like, what would be a common example of like, hey, actually you'd want to join this to be able to then get richer queries out of it? I think one example could be if you are looking at doing a cohort analysis, for example, right? If you're doing a cohort analysis, what that basically looks at is for customers who joined at some point in time who were newly registered, how much did they spend over time, right? And so in order to do that, you need to know stuff about the user, right? When they joined, where they came from, and you know how much they're spending over time. Like that's in your orders, your purchases, your invoice table. So you have to do an analysis where you look at, okay, here's the user that I have. Here's when they joined. I'm going to now join that to the orders. Here's when they have purchased their orders over time and how much they've spent. By joining those two things together, by visualizing them, you can get a really good sense of, hey, how much are they spending over time? What's my lifetime value? Do we have a retention problem? Are they fading off over time? Can we upsell them more? There's a lot of interesting things you can do once you're kind of joining these data sources together. Yeah. So many people probably know you by your Twitter profile. Um, I believe your select from some imaginary pristine table tweet is now over 2 million views. And even people have started doing TikTok dances on it, which is remarkable. I never thought I would see that. But <laughs> did you ever think data jokes would get this big? And honestly, why did you start the data Twitter? Yeah, definitely, definitely did not expect it. You know, during the kind of the peak of the pandemic and we were home, two small kids looking ways to just stay busy, started using Twitter way more. And this was when we were running our data consultancy and working with all sorts of different clients. And we were actually working with a large healthcare company and we were working with their data team. And I saw on Slack that someone kind of in the on the business side of the house said, hey, we can just have, you know, Lara go pull this data for us. And Lara was the VP of analytics. I knew the stuff that she was working on, what her team was working on. Like, she had no time to pull this data. The data they were asking for, I knew enough about their data model to know that was no small ask. And this person was just saying it as if, oh, no problem. Laura will just pull this data for us. And so throughout this tweet, just as I saw it, I just tweeted out like, hey, can you pull this data for me? Like, no, like this data doesn't exist anywhere. And it just, it resonated. And I think it resonated in people that work in, you know, traditional data teams. It resonated with people that work in you know, at university doing research, like there's this perception that people can just go and pull data and get it back. And I think what that showed me, it went so viral, it was crazy. I had people from my childhood texting me saying they saw me on Reddit, things like that, that I hadn't talked to in a long time. So it was this fun thing, but then it just showed just how much kind of 
it might sound a little trite, but shared pain that there is working in data because it, it's hard and you kind of have to laugh at how messy data is, how hard it is to work with various stakeholders, how hard it is to get clean, accurate results. So content like that, I think, resonates a lot in the data community. And so just try to keep putting it out on Twitter as best. I guess now Blue Sky. So now I'm putting it out on Blue Sky and we'll see if that transition actually happens. Hope it does. We heard it here first. Mastodon is dead. Now it's Blue Sky. But no. <laughs> actually, one thing you mentioned about the customers, like I understood their data model. I understood how that could be challenging. How should data teams, how do they get their team members to understand the data model, right? Because I mean, presumably if other people knew, hey, I'm going to have to do these joins, I'm going to have to write these queries and I have to clean this data before it happens and stuff like that. Like maybe people would say, okay, you know, I know I'm going to request this, but it's okay if you give it to me in a week or something like that, right? Should people be drawing data diagrams? How should we think about, you know, kind of sharing this sort of stuff? And I think it's a great question. I saw something recently, I think it was like Caitlin Hudon. I think she posted this thing about how she, in a previous role, collected data requests from people. And one of the things she asked them is how urgent is this and how accurate does it need to be, right? She actually asked that of the people making requests into the data team, like how urgent is this and how accurate does it need to be? Because to some extent, that is a trade-off, right? How much data cleaning, how much processing, how much time do you want me to work on this versus how urgently do you want me to just pull something and get you something that's probably directionally correct? That's often a trade-off that we're making. And I think if the other side of it is how much time and attention are you putting into getting ahead of those requests, building a clean data model, building some form of self-serve data access for maybe it's for actual business users and some drag and drop interface, or maybe in the future, some kind of AI NLP interface into that data, like we'll see, or making it easier just for the data team to pull their own data, whether that's converting something from the kind of operational data model that we were talking about in kind of that e-commerce example to something that's maybe more meant for reporting like a star schema or a snowflake schema and trying to make those decisions about what do these stakeholders need to make decisions better and how can we best do that with the data model that we have and transform it into something that helps us get to those decisions and insights faster. Thinking about this, because for some reason, diagrams still are in my head. Like people do architecture diagrams for software. Or maybe people do that for data. I've just never seen it. But like, why don't we do that for data? Yeah, I think it's growing in popularity doing this for data. Like one example of that is thinking about things in a DAG, right? Or data flowing through a system, right? Like if you're taking all these different data sources together and then joining them together and processing it into something that's ultimately this very clean data mart, you want to be able to visualize and see how that's flowing through. And then at the end of it, you also want to have you know, an ERD or some kind of documentation which shows, okay, these are the fields that are available. Here's how the tables relate to each other. You kind of want to have both. And I think you want to be able to do it in a way where you can maintain that documentation in a way that's repeatable, sustainable, built into the process, because you can really quickly, without it, end up in this kind of data swamp territory where you're just, you're dumping so much data into your data warehouse, your data lake that no one knows what they can trust, what it is, and that can happen really fast, especially because now it's really easy to move data around. It's really easy to dump data into a data warehouse, and you can really quickly end up in a place where you're in data chaos without really knowing what things you can trust versus not trust. Yeah, you have the data swamp next to the lake house with the data mesh surrounding all of it. So exactly. you know, we, we've got everything going. But 
let's go back to actually the data consultancy you mentioned, Hashpath. You were setting up data analytics for a variety of different companies from large companies to smaller companies. What were the biggest learnings you took away from seeing various companies try and set up their data stacks? We worked with a lot of kind of early stage companies that were just in their inflection point in their growth where their business was really growing. They knew that they had kind of this inability to look across their business and understand their data, right? Because their business was growing faster than their data capabilities were. You're not going to go hire a data team when you're not sure if your business is going to grow or going to be effective, right? You're going to work on growing your business, making it effective, finding product market fit, doing all the things you need to do. And then that happens. And now your data infrastructure, your data, you know, just maturity is really lagging behind. And so companies came to us generally at that inflection point where they were saying, we can't understand what's happening in our system. We don't have the right instrumentation. We can't join across these different data sources. We want to be able to do this really quickly. That's essentially where we specialized. And so we were talking to a lot of companies that didn't know where to begin. And so that's, I think, a lot of places where the modern data stack, you know, a few years ago really helped accelerate the ability for companies to do this and do it fast. And that's kind of where we focused. I know at Hashpath, you were building a lot of the practice around Looker as well. And I think we're working closely with the Looker team. Like, I'm curious why Looker, right? There was a ton of different things that were out there, right? What was it about what was being built there or what that was bringing about that you were like, hey, this is interesting. I think more people should be incorporating into their data stacks. Interestingly enough, we actually started with Chartio, right? Chartio is probably, you know, data people oftentimes obsess over tools and Chartio was like my first love. I just, I love Chartio. I could write SQL, I could parameterize it, I could build dashboards. I was this incredible experience, right? But what it meant is, I had to just write a whole bunch of SQL and, you know, I was kind of always repeating myself and duplicating dashboards and, you know, copying and pasting. That's good at a certain stage and that's fine at a certain stage. But as you mature and you start to have more and more business users wanting data, you can't just teach everybody in the company SQL. If you as an individual learn SQL, great, you're empowered. If you give the whole company access to SQL lunch and learns, and that's just going to be, again, another reason to create data chaos. And so what Looker really did incredibly well was build the best, people call it a metrics layer or semantic layer today, but that's what they had, right? They had an ability to express the relationships between tables, like we were talking about earlier, defining measures about what does it mean to have total revenue? What does that mean? Is that before tax? Is that after tax? How do you define what these things mean? Define it actually in markup, in code. And then expose drag and drop interfaces that automatically behind the scenes generate the SQL based on these definitions that you've provided in code. And so really the difference between the Chartio example and the Looker example is now someone that doesn't know SQL can go in and drag and drop their way to a dashboard. And so it really was creating leverage within organizations to be able to build the start of a self-serve data practice where the data team could be a point of leverage as opposed to just having a continual backlog of, hey, can you pull this for me? Hey, can you pull this for me? Spend a little bit of time doing data modeling, some time defining what that metric semantic layer is, and then giving business users the ability to trust the outputs of that data with a drag and drop interface. So when we started to focus there as a consultancy, we could come into companies that were at this point in their growth and start really empowering non-data people to pull data. And that's where we were able to deliver more value to our clients. But 
One of the curious things is while you were running Hashpath, you actually started white labeled data, which eventually became uh, kind of Topcoat's product. And I'm curious as to why did you build that and what were the pain points that you were trying to solve that you were like, hey, I need to build white label data, Topcoat data to be able to solve those problems. So one of the things as we were working with all these various clients that we were finding is they also had these need to provide data back to their customers. So if you were some kind of SaaS company and you worked with enterprise clients, those enterprise clients need some sort of reporting or in-product analytics to understand how well they're using the software and get their data out of it. And so embedded analytics is a pretty big space, right? How do you take data from BI tools and embed it to customers? And we just started to naturally lean into this, right? Like my background was product, as we talked about. We didn't mention that I started the consultancy with my brother. He's a software engineer. We just kind of gradually made our way to this type of data work, which was building customer-facing analytics, kind of using this modern data stack approach. So embedded analytics, essentially. And really, that's where we started to focus as our consultancy matured. And one of the things we found was that we could do this really quickly for our customers and build them these customer-facing dashboards using existing technology, but they were forced to make this decision. Are they going to use the traditional embedded dashboard or are they going to build everything themselves with their in-house R&D or engineering teams, right? That was a very clear decision they had to make. Buy an embedded dashboard. You might not have full control over the user experience. It might be built outside of your traditional software development lifecycle, or you can kind of do it all yourself, customize everything, the look and feel, but now you're stuck building all of it. You have to write all your APIs, build the UI, build the visualizations, worry a lot about caching and performance, whereas if you buy it. So we saw our clients trying to make this decision related to customer-facing analytics, and we said, there's got to be a better way to do this. We were heavy DBT users as part of our consultancy. We modeled a lot of what we were doing with DBT, right? Low code approach to building a data pipeline. We built this low code approach to building customer facing analytics, which was a best of both worlds. It split the middle between kind of the traditional embedded analytics and the let's build everything from scratch. And so it allowed data people to continue to build and work with data all the way through the dashboard layer, but also allowed software engineers to come in, customize, extend, because it was all done in code and so we just got really excited about this and ultimately decided to fully focus on building out Topcoat as a product. So I think at the recent AWS reInvent, you talked about actually how Sneak using Topcoat data and Snowflake essentially created customer-facing analytics, right? That people could use, do a bunch of analysis with. And it's basically like near real time. It was a pretty cool demo to see of just everything updating very quickly. So talk more about what went into creating that, right? Because I even know there was stuff that you had to do from like the data pipeline perspective just to get everything ready. And so talk about what was one needed to be done there. And then two, what the outcome of all that work is, like how have customers been receiving it and what have they been able to do with now this kind of near real-time customer-facing analytics? So the problem we were just describing of needing to provide enterprise customers with really rich analytics was the exact problem that Sneak was trying to solve, right? Sneak pioneered developer-first security. You know, the shift left that happened within security, really a beloved tool by developers that adopted Sneak in kind of this hyper-growth mode of adoption. And one of the things that Sneak really had to do was now provide really good analytics about a company's security posture, about adoption of Sneak, 
back to all of the security professionals that really are the sneak buyer, right? It's the developer using the tool and using our CLI and all of our developer workflows. But ultimately in security, you need to understand, okay, how is this working? How is this rolling out? Where is my risk? And so Topcoat is the engine that powers Sneak's internal reporting. And so when we first started at Sneak after the acquisition, we had to integrate Topcoat into Sneak, but then we also had to think about how do we rebuild the data pipeline? How do we ensure that all the data that's being generated from our various products at Sneak are flowing in and we can provide the right analytics? And so we switched Sneak to more of a streaming model. It's a combination of streaming and batch to some extent, but it got us to near real-time data. We're streaming data in via Kafka into Snowflake. We're doing some lightweight transformations in Snowflake. We're using Topcoat to build out all those visualizations and reports for our customers. So we're able to kind of put together this end-to-end stack so that we are delivering like really robust, valuable, exploratory analytics inside the Sneak application, which has been a, a really fun problem to solve. Yeah. What's so hard about a data pipeline? I think for a software engineer or somebody like that, they're just like, just, you know, integrate the systems and, and it'll flow through, right? Every single time you talk to data folks, it's always like, oh, we got to make sure we're working on the data pipeline. We got, you know, there's streaming, there's batch, then we're doing like transformations, we're doing in-stream queries. We're doing, there's all this sort of like buzzwords and stuff that's happening. And it just sounds like it's a really complex thing going on. And I guess like explain why is there that complexity? Because it seems like pretty simple. You just want to get data from a consumer to a producer, right? Or producer to a consumer. So like what's going on? Why is it so challenging? There's a lot that goes into like, what is the data? How is it going to move? How much data is there? What do we need this data to do? Oftentimes the data that's being produced isn't meant for analytical consumption. It's something that was, the data model was oftentimes built for operational purposes, it was. And so in order to actually query it, you need to transform it along the way and put it into a different format. Sometimes you need to snapshot the data as it changes so you can actually see that this thing happened and then it changed and this is what it was then in order to build the right kind of historical trend. So there's all these things that go into, okay, this data's in this system, we have to move it over here. Like that's one problem. But then it's also, okay, what is the data? What's the shape of it? How are we going to use it? And what has to happen along the way to make sure that when we consume it and when we use it over here, it's in the right format. And those are often trade-off decisions that you have to make, right? If you need incredibly real-time data pipelines where, you know, you're seeing your Uber driver drive on the map and it's got to be totally real-time, that's completely different from needing to look at a trend over the course of a month when, you know, if it's up to date over the course of an hour, like that's fine, doesn't matter. And so depending on how real time you need the data versus how much transformation is required in the data, those are going to be trade-offs that you need to make. You can do some amount of real-time transformation like you were talking about, but if you have to look back over longer periods of time, now it just becomes batch. So these are things that you have to consider when you're thinking about the specific use case of how I'm moving data around, where it's going and what it's for. And then you'll make different technology decisions based on those kind of requirements. Are data pipelines, a lot of times you hear about them breaking and challenges coming up with them. I think some people may say, okay, you did all this work, you set all this up, now just use it, right? Just make the thing work. I guess like, is the problem that's happening because there's continuously, like you said, data volumes proliferating that those pipelines just kind of need to be readjusted or what's going on there that makes it so challenging to maintain those over time? There's all different issues. You know, One of them could be, 
the upstream systems are constantly changing, right? They're, you're building new features, you're changing things, and your pipelines have to stay in sync with those changes. How do you version things? How do you ensure that the changes you're making upstream don't break things? Maybe there's data that all of a sudden is coming in that is unexpected. There wasn't the right validations put in, and now that causes some kind of breakage. The system's being used in an unexpected way that broke some kind of assumption in the data pipeline. There's all these things that could potentially go wrong. Maybe volume just dramatically increased that you weren't expecting. So all of these various things can have different downstream repercussions as data is flowing across these systems that really need to, you know, some ways you think you're playing whack-a-mole with all these changes. In many ways, you just have to be prepared for them and put a process in place to have a more resilient system. Yeah. Before we dive into modern data stack, I have actually one question I want to ask from the consultancy days and talking to various companies, like, is there an 80-20 rule that you have in data where it's like, hey, if you do this, you'll get most of the value. Like, sure, maybe you won't get the real-time data that you want to look like, like the Uber case or something like that. But is there some sort of things where it's like, hey, if you just set this stuff up, you'll be able to kind of get most of the gist of what you're trying to do? Yeah, I totally think so. And I think that is one of the we're going to talk about the modern data stack. That's one of the things that it did so well, right? The ability to now take all of these different data sources that you might have, put them in one place, do some transformation, and then provide some kind of dashboard or self-serve interface on top of them. That goes a long way to being able to do what the 80-20 rule. Is it going to be perfect? Are there going to be things that happen where you have a incorrect dashboard? Of course, there's going to be things that that happen with that. But the good news is tooling has matured so much over the last few years that these things now are much easier than before. They can spiral out of control just as easy as we were talking about, right, with the ways you can kind of create chaos. But just getting that first step into getting all your data centralized, getting it modeled, presenting it, that part has really become something companies can do really quickly, especially when they're at this inflection point in growth that we were talking about. So in the pre-AI era, when kind of the modern data stack was still this thing that we all talked about and everybody was constantly tweeting about on Twitter, you actually had a tweet where non-ironically, non-humorously, you were just like, hey, I'm very thankful for the modern data stack and how it's evolved into its current form. And so I guess, can you describe what was the pre-modern and then what is the modern data stack and what that shift was? The pre-modern data stack, I think about it from my perspective, right? I'm not a software engineer. I'm not, I'm not even really necessarily a data engineer, right? I am a mostly a data analyst and a product manager. And there were things in the old world before the modern data stack that people like me just weren't technical enough to do, right? Maybe it was running Hadoop and the big data error, things like that, that really were just not accessible to data analysts. And I think one of the things that the modern data stack has done was really enable data analysts and people that understand data models, like we're talking about that understand SQL to now do a whole lot of stuff inside the data pipeline. And I wrote one blog a couple of years ago saying that an analytics engineer is really just a pissed off data analyst, right? Like that is how I felt as someone that was a data analyst, I could now kind of move to the left in the data pipeline, start working in tools like DBT that help you transform your data using only SQL and start to do way more than you ever could before. And it's enabled data teams to own a lot more of what they're able to help move forward in the business and help people that are data savvy do more that they probably couldn't do with the older technology. If a founder came up to you, has no clue what the 
modern data stack is. And it's like, Seth, explain to me the basic components. I know there's so many different areas, right? Even just as you were talking about what the customer facing analytics looked like at Sneak, like there was just a lot of different things involved. But basic components, what are those for the modern data stack? The modern data stack as kind of originally coined, I think is basically a system that kind of embraces this extract load transform architecture, right? Traditionally, you would have an extract transform and load process. And one of the things that happened is the rise of cloud data warehouses. So Snowflake and BigQuery. And what Snowflake and BigQuery allowed companies to do was put a whole bunch of data in and then be able to handle really large volumes of compute, separating the storage from the compute, really having good controls and knobs and levers around scale and performance. And so rather than before, where you were kind of constrained by your database and how big it was and how much it could store and how much it could compute, you could now stick a whole bunch of data into your data warehouse like Snowflake or BigQuery. And then you could use tools like DBT to transform the data once it arrives in your data warehouse. You're transforming it inside the warehouse. You're taking it from kind of a raw stage to a semi-processed stage to a fully ready data mart that you can now query and process with the BI tool. And so the traditional V1 modern data stack was really four things. It was a tool like a Fivetran to extract data from source systems, whether that's a database, whether that's Salesforce, whether that's HubSpot, whether that's Marketo, whatever, load it in to a warehouse like Snowflake or BigQuery, that's two. A tool like DBT to transform that data into a usable fashion, that's step three. And then step four was some tool on top of that to enable either dashboarding or self-service BI. So that was the original data stack. And really that entire thing could be set up in under an hour. It's that easy to set it up if you kind of know how things are connected and spin up this new stack. Then it's the implementation and how you do the data modeling. There's real work that goes in, but the act of spinning up that data stack was something that was pretty revolutionary that you could now be centralizing your data, transforming it and visualizing it really quickly. I'm not sure anybody is currently setting it up in an hour. Just, I mean, maybe you know some people. I, I, I have not heard anybody that said it takes an hour, but maybe it's because they're trying to over-engineer it or something. But I have a video, it's posted. I did it in 40 minutes live, no edits, just demonstrating, right? It was a very basic flow. It combined Google Analytics with Postgres database, spun up a Snowflake instance, signed up for Fivetran, put it in DBT, signed up for DBT Cloud, and signed up for Chartio. That was the demo. And took a little rehearsing, had to do two full run-throughs before I could get it clean and 40 minutes. But that is the power of it is you can do it really quickly. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll have to link to that video because I, I actually haven't seen that. So we'd love to see it. But one of the things that's come out recently has been Snowflake has, one, been shipping a lot of different things. But they talked about the zero copy concept that came out. And I imagine that that could have big implications on the ETL space, on the, the reverse ETL stuff. So kind of describe what's going on with that Snowflake zero copy. And if they keep building that out, do we not need to do something like ETL again? So one of the things that's so interesting about Snowflake and BigQuery, right, is the separation of storage from compute. You can have some data that's sitting somewhere, right, like, you know, stored in Snowflake, and you can have multiple different virtual warehouses querying that same data without moving it. And what that also means, it has a really interesting data sharing capabilities, where if you want to share data with someone else in your org or someone else external to your org, you can actually share that data that doesn't actually need to move. It doesn't actually have to ship over the wire 
and go from like this S3 bucket to this S3 bucket, you can literally share the same data that's physically not moving. And that opens up all sorts of different, really interesting use cases. And so much of data sharing today and data between different businesses and different parties is these really bulk transfers of data over the wire. And so, you know, I think there is a lot of really interesting opportunity to leverage features like this, especially if both parties use Snowflake, right? If both parties happen to use Snowflake and they're in the same region, like there's a lot of kind of nuance there, but there's a lot of potential for kind of ways in which really without ETL, you can start to securely share data between parties, which I'm personally pretty excited about. Yeah. We couldn't have a podcast without talking about the buzzwords of the day, right? And of the time. And the buzzword that everyone's talking about again for the probably third or fourth time is, is AI, right? And we've gone through all these loops, but really this time the LOMs, you know, ChatGPT has captured everyone's imagination and has frankly been incredible to play with. And so I guess a couple questions here, but maybe the first one is like, how do you think LOMs will affect data team workflows? Like, do you think there will be a co-pilot-like experience for SQL to allow data teams to focus more on kind of the vision of data apps being maintained by them? Yeah, I personally definitely do. And this has been, I think, like everyone going through this incredible shift in what we're seeing. I think a year ago, I was a total skeptic about any kind of new query language, right? You always hear about companies inventing their own query language, some abstraction on top of SQL to make it easier for their external customers to query data. And it just looks a lot like SQL, right? Like, why are you going off and inventing your own query language, right? And I've always been you know, just not a fan of that approach. And I've also thought historically, like NLP on top of SQL always was kind of like a gimmick and you're describing the SQL so similar to SQL, like what's the point? But as I've started to use the new technology that's come out, I've completely shifted my opinion. And so, you know, just experimenting like everyone else over the last few months, just doing various things. Like we talked about the Stripe example earlier or the e-commerce example earlier in the podcast. And one of the first things I did is I actually fed in the Stripe schema as generated by Fivetran into ChatGPT. And I said, hey, like this is the schema. This is what invoices mean. I had to do some, you know, explaining of the data types and whatnot. And then I said, can you do a cohort analysis on this? I asked it a few more basic questions before that. But then I said, okay, can you do a cohort analysis? And it just nailed the SQL, right? It didn't have the data, but it nailed the SQL that you'd have to generate to do it. And truly my mind was blown. I couldn't believe how well it did that with how little configuration I had to provide. And I think as companies get better at kind of refining what those prompts might be or describing their data in some type of semantic layer, I think that becomes just as important, right? You need to have some layer that describes your data so that the SQL can be generated. But I think it's real. And I think that text will be the self-serve layer, the same way kind of Looker had the drag and drop UI on top of your semantic layer. I really do think that will shift into natural language and provide additional self-service interfaces to business users. And I think that's happening faster than we think, you know, like companies like Hex already releasing their Hex magic, where they let users generate SQL like we were talking about. So it's happening fast. And, you know, self-serve analytics has always been something that's pretty elusive besides the things we've talked about. And so I'm pretty excited about it. Are you excited about talking about your tweets where everyone's always asking the data team, hey, pull this thing, pull that thing, stuff like that? Like, I imagine there's a vision that you have of when you're talking about this self-serve thing where somebody else can just come in, natural language, just write, hey, can you give me a cohort analysis 
of X. And not only will it generate the SQL, but it'll also run it. So then all of a sudden that somebody can see it. I'm assuming like what will need to happen is some sort of stopover or asset acknowledgement or something by the data team to make sure that it's not hallucinating and, and showing some sort of like crazy data to the end user. But it, presumably like that could make data teams pretty happy because they're not having to constantly do all these requests and they can focus on the stuff that they really get excited about. Is that how you kind of see it playing out? I think so. And I, th I think that will probably happen sooner than we think. It doesn't replace the data team having to have clean, documented data models and, you know, maybe a metrics layer or a semantic layer that defines what revenue actually means or what lifetime value means. You still have to do a lot of the work to explain the nuances and the way that you want data to be ultimately handled. But then from there, if given enough structure, can you ask questions of that data? I think the answer is, is yes, and is going to be yes. I think that will change the way in which people interact with data teams. I think that will, will change quite a bit. Yeah. If you could ma wave a magic wand and you could change something about the data space, what would that be? I mean, for me, it is better in product analytics. Like I feel like so often you as a user come into an app and want to have this awesome analytics experience about what's happening. And you're forced to pull the data out of the tool, do everything we were just talking about. Like I would love to see a world where every product has an awesome exploratory analytical interface. What we were so passionate about, about TopCode is what we're building at Sneak. I really feel like the industry has a ton of, of work to do to make that a reality. Maybe some of the recent enhancements will help that, but I'd love to see that. What's always interesting to me about this sort of analytics space is one of the best places for, at least for user-facing analytics, seems to be like sports teams. It's yeah. like the NFL, it's the NBA, it's like stuff like that. And I think it's, they use it for like fan engagement, right? Because we're all playing fantasy football or we want to see the stats of like, how many did they run? Did they drop a foot? Like how many times did they get sacked? All this sort of stuff, right? And it brings this engagement out of us being able to see those analytics. But meanwhile, like when we're on Zoom or something, like it might be cool to see like, how many minutes was I talking? How many minutes was Seth talking? I, I, I don't know what those might look like, but it might be like we would be more engaged if that happened. But I feel like that has not, for some reason, the incentive is not as much there on the enterprise side as it is for something like, like sports where they've done just such a remarkable job. I love that example. And honestly, like how many meetings are you in where people dominate the Zoom meeting? They don't stop talking, right? Like imagine having a, a summary as soon as you jumped off that that Zoom call that showed exactly how many minutes people talked. I think that would really change behavior and lead to more productive conversations, more productive. Those are the types of kind of contextual types of analytics that I'd love to see more of. And I think really would add tons of value throughout all different types of workflows and interactions. To wrap things up, we have two questions that we like to ask everyone here on Software Snack Plate. So first one is, what's your favorite technology or app that you've played with or researched recently? For me, it's the obvious one, right? It's everything that's happening with OpenAI. It's SQL generation. It's that layer on top of the data stack. I feel like every data company that I look at now is doing something related to this. And I think really quickly, it might become a commoditized feature. And the question is, how will the best companies actually really leverage this to transform how we do interact with data, how we interact with data teams, how we provide data to customers? Like it's going to change. It's going to change fast and pretty excited about it. It's how we know you're a data guy because, you know, you're talking about SQL generation. Meanwhile, I use it for like, I've used it for creating a recipe for like a grocery list. I asked it to design a workout plan. It's pretty cool. Like once you have it do that, but I have not asked it to generate SQL for me. So maybe that's something I need to start playing around with. Give it a try. 
<laughs> but uh, final question is, what's your favorite snack? My favorite snack, I eat a bowl of plain yogurt with these huge chocolate chips. They're just, you know, all there in them is chocolate and dates. There's special chocolate chips. It's so good. That's my favorite snack. Chocolate chips and yogurt, nothing else. It's healthy enough and really good. My daily routine. All right. I need to work that in because I usually go for the Nestle Toll House chocolate chips. So the, the, the Hue ones might be a little bit better. Uh, well, Seth, thanks so much for taking the time and doing all this. How can people find you if they'd like to stay in touch? Yeah. So I'm Seth Rosen on Twitter and Seth Rosen on Blue Sky or however you find people on Blue Sky. I don't know. But right now, still in both places. So yeah, excited to connect. If people do reach out on Twitter, I assume if they put a dated Twitter joke, like you might be a little bit more uh, willing to respond to them. <laughs> always, always. Can't, can't stop. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed the discussion and look forward to seeing what you ship in the future. Sweet. Awesome. Thanks for having me on.